Hello, this is Len Tengis welcoming you to the iPodcast AGCMO Weekly Podcast. In each episode, we'll feature information about a contractor, specialty contractor, supplier, contracting agency, owner, or legislative or regulatory issue pertinent to the construction industry in Missouri. We'll feature industry professionals and other construction industry representatives to help our listeners stay up to date with current and future trends in construction. So here we go. Welcome back to iPodcast AGCMO. Today I am at the corporate offices for Brown Smith Wallace. I have with me Barbara Hall, CPA, audit manager, and a subject matter expert on employee benefit plan auditing. And Scott Brandt, who is a partner in audit services and leader of the construction industry practice group. So welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Len. So Barb, we recently did a webinar about fiduciary responsibility, and this is a hard topic for people. I think it's kind of one of those things that I sense that a lot of our people put on autopilot. They get a 401k, they get a retirement plan in place for their staff. They figure, well, I signed the papers, I started this thing, great, let's just go. And then don't pay attention to it, and bad things can happen if they don't pay attention to it. Absolutely right. So I think you're right that people have great intentions. You know, they want to offer a retirement plan for their employees. And so they think, oh, I'll just go with a reputable company, like, say, a Fidelity, a Vanguard there's many to choose from and I'll just sign these contracts and and you know kind of wash my hands I'm I'm done and and it's great but the reality is that the DOL requires all plan sponsors to act as a fiduciary and there are a number of other people who are involved with plans who technically qualify to be a fiduciary and once you are a fiduciary of a plan you really have a fairly significant amount of responsibility for that plan. So who are all those other people? Well it really varies by the way the plan is set up. The DOL actually under the the law is called the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974 and we basically use the acronym ERISA. So under ERISA the definition of a fiduciary is really a functional test. It, it, it's not at all based on what that person's job title is. It's how do they act in relationship to the plan. So is it sort of anybody who's a decision maker? In certain sense, yes. If they exercise discretionary control over things like plan management, plan assets, the plan administration of the plan, then th- then they are a fiduciary. Also, anyone who offers investment advice for a fee is considered a plan fiduciary. So as you can see, there could be people who, who, may, who maybe are in, like, for instance, the human resources function, who aren't, um, who don't have a, a title that you might consider to be someone as a fiduciary, like director or a vice president, who could actually be exercising discretionary authority over things like plan management or the administration of the plan in certain cases, and they would be actually considered a fiduciary. I would guess a certain number of your clients probably don't even realize 
who all the fiduciaries are on their individual plans. It, it is always possible, especially for newly, uh, what we would call a, uh, plans that have just grown to large plan status, where they are now encountering the initial audit requirement for the plan, where they've grown to over 100 participants, like for instance, in a 401k plan, they may not have had a lot of contact with like CPA firms or ERISA attorneys or things, you know, people who would be able to give them the kind of education that would enlighten them to their fiduciary responsibility. So a large number of our AGC members are small employers Mm -hmm. with 30, 40, 50 people. So maybe I've got my office staff as part of a 401k. Maybe I've got my, some of my field staff involved in in a retirement plan. What sort of responsibilities do I have as a fiduciary in that environment? If we're talking about a 401k plan, there's there's many things that they're required to do. They're required to actually administer the plan in accordance with the plan document. That means to make sure that that everything in the plan document is what's happening on a day-to-day basis. So for instance, if they are supplying a match to make sure that that match is being correctly calculated. One of the very important responsibilities is to make sure that those participants' contributions are timely being remitted to the plan as soon as they can be reasonably segregated from the company's assets. That's that's a huge one, which we talked about extensively on, on the webinar. That's not my float money. <laughs> that's exactly right. You can't just be using that to kind of like get you to the next time you're getting a check. So uh, things like educating your your workforce so that they understand their responsibilities to select investments and and do their own retirement planning. There's just so many things that you really have to consider. I don't think it's something that can't be done. Of course it can, but I just think that people need to do some training, which our firm actually does offer that service where we can actually come in and do a a fiduciary training similar but probably a little more in-depth to what we do on the webinar Um, to actually help people understand what they should be doing. Oftentimes, plans are either run in a very informal manner, for many small plans do that, but as they get larger, they often have a a committee or a group of trustees that runs the plan, Um, and certainly those folks typically do get some fiduciary training and education so they understand what their responsibilities are. So what's the biggest horror story you can tell me? Oh, well, I've seen a lot of things. I've seen fraud related to plans um, in my career where people were using participant deferrals to cover frauds in companies. I've, you know, I've seen companies that have had late payments for 401ks for years and then, you know, have racked up just tons of penalties and interest related to that. But that honestly isn't generally what I see. I mean, I really do normally see companies who are trying very hard to do the right thing and they really care about it and they're often have a small accounting and HR staff sometimes even people who are doing multiple functions and they're just trying to to do the best they can so uh, when we see that in small clients you know we really try to help them figure out how to comply with these um, requirements so what about your larger clients I think the threshold we talked about 
Before we start recording here today, the 81-20 rule, which I think a lot of people's eyes glaze over. There's a lot of depth behind this. It's, it, it Really, if you peel it all the way back, it relates to what sort of 5500, form 5500, you have to file for the plan. Can you file a short form, the SF, or can you? do you have to file the long, full form 5500? But what people really, what it boils down to is, do you have to audit the plan? Because once you file that long form 5500, you're required to attach a an audit opinion from a certified public accountant regarding the financial statements for those for that plan. So many people just talk about the requirement for the audit when they talk about this. So when a plan is organically grown, you know when they when you just start a brand new plan for your company, um, and it's very small. If it's very small at first, then you know like under under 100 participants, you're, you are not required to file that long form and attach an audit opinion. But as you get up to that 100 person mark, the DOL provides you some leeway, which is where this 8120 rule comes in place. So they measure it at the beginning of a plan year. So once you get to the point of you have 120 participants, you at the beginning of a plan year, you must you must file the long form and get an audit. You can after you pass the 100 mark, but most plans don't initially start the audit until they're required to. So then for many companies, especially like in the construction industry where there's a lot of fluctuation maybe related to the economy. I could have 80 employees this month, 20 employees the next month, 200 the next month. How do I calculate that exactly so well it's it's as of the beginning of the plan year so if it's a traditional calendar year plan it would be on january 1st so for some companies if they have major fluctuations from one year to the next they may think okay maybe you dip down under 100 people in year five but so you're like well technically i'm not required to have an audit anymore i've had one maybe for the last three years once i got up to that 120 mark but you, you can make a decision. Do you think that this is like a one-time blip and you're going to be back over 120 next January 1st? If so, you, you may just go ahead and have the audit done anyway. Um, and if, if you think it's a long-term decline, then maybe you're not. Maybe I'm like, okay, I'm probably I'm not going to be back over, over that 100 mark. So I'm just going to discontinue having the audit and start filing the 5500 short form SF again. So that's why the DOL supplied that 8120 rule because the reason why you might not want to go away from the audit um, if it's just a one-time occurrence is because the DOL requires you to file a comparative statement of net assets available for benefits. And so you would still, like the following year when you're back up over 120, you would have to actually have the audit firm go back and, and audit that beginning statement of net assets so you kind of are going to get it anyway and it's just easier to just continue on um, so that's that's why they supply that leeway well i would be remiss if i didn't mention that one of the things that agc missouri has done over the last six months is start a multi-employer 401k we are partnered with northwestern mutual and transamerica and we have put a multi-employer plan in place so that some of that fiduciary responsibility can be shared among multiple contractors. Of course, it doesn't apply to folks who are part of a collective bargaining unit, but those folks who are 
in an employer-sponsored plan like you're talking about, they have the option now to pool their resources, sort of file one audit instead of five audits, share the load as we try to do through our association. So I just wanted to mention that as part of the podcast here, that folks can find that on our website if they're interested in learning more about some ways to share the pain of having to go through the audit and all these fiduciary responsibilities. With respect to the eligible participant count that Barb was talking about, I think one thing to remember, too, there is that that definition is really based upon um, not necessarily the number of people that you employ at the end of the year, beginning of the the plan year, um, but it also includes those that may be no longer with the company but still have a balance in the plan. They're still considered to be eligible participants. So you really got to look at your volume of turnover throughout the year, too, and consider whether or not these people with small balances need to have some sort of auto, auto kickout policy for you so you can distribute their money out and they don't count towards their eligible participant number. It's so so I, may, I may have not worked for the company for two, three, four years, but if I've retained a balance in there, I still count towards that total. Correct. I've seen a client that happened to him. They have a lot of turnover over the summer, and they started an auto-enrollment feature to get participant count up but then they didn't realize they didn't have the auto kickout policy on the back end to try to get those participants that had small balances at under 500 or 1000 even $5,000. So when they leave, they take that money with them, and we don't have to consider them a, part- a plan participant anymore. Well, Scott, tell me what the leader of the construction industry practice group does. What does that mean? So, so my role as that is, is to help the people within our firm that have a strong interest and desire to work with construction contractors just organize that group and figure out a way how we want to go to market how we want to provide services to our contractor clients i know that this fiduciary piece of what you're doing is only a piece of what the construction industry practice group does so what are some of the other services that you provide as part of that whole bundle yeah so some other services that we provide Um, The audit function, for sure, audit, financial statements, reviews, compilations, tax return preparations. Um, We do a lot of consulting with state and local taxes. So if you're getting into different jurisdictions across the country, we can take a look at what that might mean for you as a contractor with respect to sales tax obligations. We've gotten involved with succession planning within, within contractors. We do audit benefit plans for contractors. We do insurance reviews, so if you're looking at going out for renewal, i got a couple of clients right now that we're helping them uh, select their next insurance provider. We're not selling insurance, but we're just trying to figure out what makes sense from a, an RFP proposal process. As part of my fiduciary responsibility, as I understand it, I also have the obligation to occasionally look at my plan in the marketplace and make sure that the plan that I have selected is not just on autopilot forever and ever, but if there are other options where fees may be lower or investment choices may be broader, I have some responsibility to look at what other investment options are available in the best interest of the plan participants. Absolutely. So you're required to evaluate fees and investment performance for plans as a fiduciary. This is sometimes an area where trustees or administrative committees or whomever is exercising that fiduciary control over the plan will will often look outside and get some help through an investment advisor unless there's someone actually part of the fiduciary team who who understands that but you absolutely need to benchmark 
fees and performance. And in fact, many of the lawsuits that we have seen come out lately are in regards to fees and things related to investments as well. I just don't hire my buddy to run the plan and he's charging me whatever or she whatever they want to charge me and I haven't really been rigorous on making sure that this is the best deal for the participants. Yes, absolutely. And the other thing in relation to fees is that you really need to understand exactly what those fees pertain to and whether or not the plan even needs those services because sometimes you will get quoted kind of a package deal if you will from various providers and then if you peel that back you discover that there may be many of those items that the plan doesn't need is not going to utilize and basically if you had compared that to a la carte prices for the things that the plan really is utilizing you you would realize that you're paying more than you need to and so if you go and read some of the lawsuits that have come out recently that's actually a huge issue right now is fees and making sure that you are looking at investment performance, what kind of mutual funds are being used, are they the lowest cost mutual funds that that plan it would be entitled to use? Like, for instance, are you are you going out and, and getting like a retail version of, the, of a mutual fund? Or are you getting an institutional class mutual fund that you are entitled to use due to the size of the plan that offers lower fees? So as we wrap up here, Barb, what is the single most important piece of advice you can give to somebody who's a fiduciary for their company plan get training i would say get get training on what your fiduciary responsibilities are the dol provides information on their website you could hire a risk counsel or a cpa firm our firm audits 170 plus benefit plans annually i would say if you're looking for a cpa firm look for someone who is part of the aicpa's employee benefit plan audit quality center because those firms have a specific niche area in employee benefit plans and have a lot of specialized training so you're going to get people who really understand how ERISA impacts the plan and they can really help you make sure that you're fulfilling all of your fiduciary responsibilities. And we recently with AGC and Missouri and Brownsmith Wallace did a webinar about this very topic that is an hour long, much more extensive, has a lot more detail, has a PowerPoint presentation that goes along with it. So if I want to obtain that copy of that, how do I get it? You could send an email to me. My email address is bhall, that's B-H-A-L-L, at bswllc.com. And you will email a link or email them the presentation, and then they can know everything to take care of. Yes, we would be happy to do that. Thank you, Barb. I think Barb's right. Uh, just making sure your people are educated and, and understanding that plan document, too, because in general, no two look alike and, and if you can get understand if you're in this fiduciary role to to real to read through that entire plan document and know all the nuances in there because there are a lot of elections that can be made and differences that can be treated but at the end of the day you need to make sure that you are following what the plan document says scott barb thank you both very much appreciate it thank you lynn thank you lynn thanks again for listening It's easy to subscribe to iPodcast AGCMO in the iTunes Store or on Google Play. 
As always, you can visit us at agcmo.org for additional downloads and information. Thank you.